When I began writing many years ago, I had moved away from Tennessee and my family and the friends I'd grown up with. It was a difficult transition. Sometimes it's still a transition. Probably in some ways, I never really made a transition at all. I'm just a displaced Southerner. So naturally, I guess, when I would sit down to write, I kept winding up in Tennessee in the house where I grew up, 305 Stewart Street, in the town with the charming courthouse and the Rebel Grill and a celebration known as Mule Day. The streets and the houses and all those people were right there with me. Since moving back to Tennessee wasn't an option, I did the next best thing. I wrote about it. Late last summer, my editor called to tell me that Dolly Parton had read my new book, Somebody Everybody Listens To, and that she liked it and she planned to write a blurb for the jacket. I was speechless. Here was Tennessee's best treasure, a person the whole world knows and loves, a woman who has accomplished things a thousand people put together could never do, and not only had she read my book before it was even published, but she'd liked it and wanted to say nice things about it. Would you like to hear the Dolly quote on the, yeah. on the back? Okay. She write, Dolly writes, um, reading about Retta Lee Jones's journey to Nashville was a lot like reading my own diary, except she had prettier boots. It's a wonderful story about dreams and determination that reminds us all to squeeze the most out of every single day. What makes me most proud of my little Dolly connection, I guess, is the fact that we are both Tennessee girls. A long time ago, I had this dream of writing books. I thought, wouldn't it be great, the very best thing ever, to have something I've written in book form? You know, like I could go to the library and look on a shelf, and there would be a book with my name on the spine. To me, this was the ultimate dream. I didn't grow up with money. I didn't have any social connections to help me get started on my author path. I read some as a kid, but not nearly enough for a kid who secretly wanted to be a writer. And if you went over to UT and took a look at my bleak transcript from my freshman year of college, okay, let's not go there. <laughs> um, when I think about it, it was probably my love for Tennessee, my longing for home and hills and people who say y'all that kept me writing. And after a while, my little dream of being a writer became an actual goal. Everything I did suddenly was about this one thing, writing a book and seeing it through to publication. So I read and I studied and I went to conferences and even scraped together the money for graduate school. Maybe on my way home, I'll stop by UT's records office, drop off a copy of my most recent transcript and a letter of apology <laughs> for wasting so much of their time and also for those wet wads of toilet paper my Massey, friends, my Massey Hall friends and I used to lob out the windows. You didn't hear that. Forget I said that. We called them wifeys. <laughs> I love having a quote at the beginning of my books. Usually I find the quote early on during the first draft process. I'll copy it onto an index card and tape it to my computer for inspiration. When I was working on somebody, the quote I used was this one. You'll never do a whole lot unless you're brave enough to try. This quote was stuck to my computer long before I knew Dolly would read my book and like it and blurb it, yet it is Dolly's quote. Like our famous Tennessee girl, the words are simple and straightforward, yet profound too. You'll never do a whole lot unless you're brave enough to try. Somebody Everybody Listens To is the story of a girl very much like I was, maybe very much like some of you are. She has a dream and a little bit of talent, so she heads off to Nashville on what philosopher Joseph Campbell calls the hero's journey. Her plan for getting there seems fairly solid. She'll get a job, find a place to live. She'll save money for headshots and demos. She'll network and learn the business of music. But things don't ever go as planned. Not at, 
right? <laughs> Not in novels and hardly ever in real life either. And so Retta, like so many others, ends up in the belly of the whale, as they say. This passage I've chosen to read today is at the very, very beginning of the novel, before the whale belly. Retta has finally finished up her senior year of high school and is maybe ready to give the music business a try. This is the prologue, and it's called Everything Begins with an Ending. Even on graduation day, the Starling High School gymnasium smelled just like it always did, a combination of old sweat and dust masked somewhat by cherry-scented disinfectant and floor polish. In spite of my C average, I sat on the stage with snooty, holier-than-thou valedictorian Desiree Gibbons on my left and some three-piece suit guy the principal introduced as a superintendent to my right. I knew the ceremony lineup by heart, of course. As soon as Brother James quit praying, which at the rate he was going might be sometime after Labor Day, I was to sing the national anthem. Then, after Desiree finished her long-winded speech about what a great student she'd been, I'd launch into that tearjerker Trace Atkins song, You're Gonna Miss This. After that, Miss Lynn, our high school guidance counselor, would call our names, and Principal Langford would hand out the diplomas. Admittedly, You're Gonna Miss This is a very pretty song. It's all about growing up and appreciating every little stage of life, no matter how miserable you may feel at the time. But truth be told, I'm not going to miss much about Starling High School. And now we have readily Jones to sing the national anthem for us, I heard Brother James say. Discreetly, I unstuck my navy skirt and polyester graduation robe from my sweaty thighs and clicked toward the microphone in the painful high heels I'd borrowed from Mama. While the crowd of proud parents and grandmas and aunts and uncles got to their feet, I took a deep cleansing breath, the kind my chorus teacher, Miss Stem, taught us to do way back in ninth grade. Oxygen filled my lungs, making my diaphragm expand. And in that moment of so quiet you could hear a pin drop anticipation, I let the words ease off my tongue, soft and low at first, oh, say, can you see, then after a few lines louder, the bombs bursting in air. At what so proudly we hailed, I closed my eyes. When I belted out that last line, the land of the free and the home of the brave, I glanced down at the kids in the front row, and Shelton Albright caught my eye. Tears were rolling down his cheeks, and I remembered then that he'd gone and signed himself up for the Army. The room thundered with applause. Daddy whistled, Desiree clapped enthusiastically, and even the superintendent gave me a thumbs up. It was the kind of moment most people would want to last forever, but I couldn't wait for it to be over so I could get on with my real life the one I'd been staring out the window and daydreaming about all through high school. And then the chapters, um, each of the chapters opens with a little bio of a different singer that's tied into the title of each chapter. So this first one is called She's Not Just a Pretty Face. And anybody know who Eileen Regina Edwards is? Any idea? Do you know? Okay. (laughs) It's Shania Twain. Um, She was born August 28, 1965, uh, Windsor, Ontario, Canada. Her first job was at McDonald's. Her big break came at the Deerhurst Resort in Huntsville, Ontario in the late 80s. Uh, After her parents' tragic death on November 1, 1987, Shania became the guardian of her three younger siblings. So I'll read some of this to you. And the title again is She's Not Just a Pretty Face. Come on, Retta, do it, please. Brenda pleaded and batted her purple-shadowed, coal-lined lids at me. It's the least you can do after I bought your supper. It was a happy meal, I pointed out. Well, I still bought it. 
Brenda replied and stuffed our empty food containers into the sack. It was graduation night, but Brenda and I decided to skip Tercel Blunt's big show-off party out on River Road. Instead, we sat on Baker's Point, gossiping and listening to the radio, just the two of us, just like always. Brenda rummaged through her pocketbook in search of a cigarette I knew. You're not smoking in here. It's my car, Brenda replied. Well, you're still not smoking in here. Do you want me to sing or not, I asked, like I was making a huge sacrifice. The truth is, I love singing for Brenda. Oh, fine, Brenda snapped and dropped her steamer-sized purse onto the floorboard again. The weight of it nearly broke my toe. I won't smoke, but do Bobby Gentry first. Ode to Billy Joe, I just love that song. All right, I replied and turned off the radio. When I concentrate real hard, I can sound just like Bobby Gentry did way back when, or Dolly, or Loretta, or Tammy, or Emmy Lou too, for that matter. Miss Stem always said my voice is just like Play-Doh. It can take on any shape I want. I closed my eyes and tried to get myself in the Tallahatchie Bridge mindset, all dark and eerie and tragic, but it was too tramp cramped in the car. I've got to stand up, I said. I swung the door open and tromped through the itchy weeds to the front of Brenda's metallic orange Camaro. Brenda switched on the headlights, then climbed onto the hood. Retta, 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 she chanted, and raised her cigarette lighter. This is not a Pink Floyd concert, I reminded her. I'm just preparing you for fame is all, Brenda said, and increased the flame to torch mode. She made roaring crowd noises and pounded the car. She may be just one tiny skinny girl, but she can make the racket of 40 people. I closed my eyes and imagined it then. The eager audience, the glare of stage lights, the plunk of a guitar, the haunting swell of violins, then me, Retta Lee Jones, a.k.a. Bobby Gentry, circa 1967. It was the 3rd of June, another sleepy, dusty Delta day. I paused for effect, then took off toward Choctaw Ridge. When the song was finished, Brenda gave me a standing ovation. God, I wish I could do that, Retta. I so wish I could do that. You sound just like her. Do another one. Come on, do Dolly this time. Coat him any colors, please, she pleaded, and sat down again. Dolly's intonations came easily. Maple syrup with a little Marilyn Monroe mixed in. The slight warbling in her silky voice reminded me of a hummingbird or a bumblebee. Like me, she'd grown up surrounded by nature, and I wondered if these sounds had influenced her vocal cords somehow. After some Loretta and Tammy, I climbed back in the car and polished off my sundrop although the last thing I needed was more caffeine. Singing always gets me keyed up, makes my hands shake ever so slightly in my heart race. Brenda stood outside the Camaro and did her best to blow the cigarette smoke in the opposite direction. She'd gone quiet all of a sudden. What's the matter, I asked. Brenda didn't respond. She just stood there with her back toward me. Her shoulders looked so narrow and bony, fragile somehow, even though Brenda is one of the toughest people I know. Everything's changing, you know that? You, me, Wayne, everything. Well, it's not changing quick enough, I said glumly. But it will. Our lives are in fast forward now that high school's over. Brenda took a drag and blew swirly smoke rings into the air. I'll start nursing school in the fall, and you'll be off in Nashville by then. We were silent for a minute. Retta? Yeah. You've got to do it. And I know it's going to be hard and all, but it'll be much worse being left. It's always easier to be the one leaving. Brenda dropped her cigarette butt into the McDonald's cup, and it sizzled on impact. She put the lid on again, then slid back into the driver's seat. In case you haven't noticed, I have no car and no money, and I won't be going anywhere anytime soon, I said. Why are you like this all of a sudden, Retta? Like what? Like this, she frowned at me. Retta, nobody else at Starlin High School had a clue about what they wanted out of life, except for Desiree, of course. But you, well, Retta, you always knew what you were meant to do. And it used to be so much fun to talk about Nashville. You were all gung-ho, Miss Positive Attitude, nothing's going to stop me. But for weeks now, you're nothing but doom and gloom about the whole thing. It's like you've just given up or something. 
Now it's real, I pointed out. I'm not sitting in algebra class daydreaming. Let's take the T-tops out, Brenda said suddenly, and pop the one on her side. Brenda's car is historic, or just plain old, depending on your perspective. So instead of a sunroof, it has two removable glass panels. I took out the one on my side, and we slid them both into the back seat. We could drive by Tercel's, Brenda suggested. I heard her daddy was setting off fireworks tonight. I shook my head. I wasn't in the mood for silly Tercel or her daddy's fireworks. I had to buy a hot water heater two weeks ago. Did you know that? Brenda ignored me and fumbled through her CD case. Last month, it was the TV, I went on. One minute, Daddy was watching Lonesome Dove for the hundredth time, and the next minute, the stupid thing was dead. The picture tube went bad, and you can't fix that. You just have to buy a whole new television. Maybe the picture tube was sick of Lonesome Dove, said Brenda. The second I get a decent amount saved up, just enough to maybe buy some really crappy car, I have to help pay the electric bill or the phone bill. Daddy works hard and all, but he's never going to make any real money at movers and shakers, and it's killing him. His back is in spasms every night when he gets home. Well, for one thing, that's the stupidest name I've ever heard of. I mean, you want all your stuff moved without the shaking, right, said Brenda? Whatever. The point is, Mr. Hawkins hardly pays him anything, and the little bit I contribute helps out some, but it means I can't save up enough to leave. And when, or if I do leave, what'll Daddy do then? Well, your mother could always get a job, Brenda said, and pressed her lips together. I could tell she was trying hard not to keep, to keep her strong opinions about my mother to herself. Yeah, well, Mama says she'll get a job the day Daddy learns to turn on the stove and or operate the washing machine. You want to know what's weird? Nope. It's like there are these two me's. There's the one me that truly believes I'll go to Nashville and pursue my dream and be a singer. And then there's this other me that just laughs and shakes her head and says, it'll never happen. There's not anybody else in that head of yours, is there? And you want to know what gets to me more than any of that other stuff? Brenda switched off the light and checked her teeth in the rearview mirror. That maybe I'm not good enough anyway, I went on. That maybe I'll somehow scrape together the money and get to Nashville only to find out, shut up, Retta, Brenda snapped off the light. I'll listen to you piss and moan about money because that's a serious problem. But this other stuff is stupid and you know it. All you've heard your whole life is what a great singer you are. Most people would sell their soul for your voice. Tercel would settle for an A cup just to sing like you. And in case you haven't noticed, she is very fond of her double Ds. Brenda pushed the CD in. Please don't play that Shania song again. Maybe you should really listen to it, Brenda said, and advanced to track three. She's not just a pretty face, eased out of the speakers. And Brenda cranked the volume and sang along off key. When it was over, she lowered it again. Shania's parents died, Retta. Can you imagine getting a phone call like that, finding out that both your parents are dead? I don't want to talk about this, I replied. Brenda had told Shania's tragic story a million times, and it always gave me a pit in my stomach, like something bad was about to happen. She was left with all those brothers and sisters to take care of, and she was still a kid herself. I know, I said. Somehow she made it, though, Brenda went on. She's not just a pretty face, which is how come I love that song so much. Shania's tough and strong, just like you and me. It'll work out. You will get to Nashville, Retta, she said, with way more confidence than I deserved. Brenda started the car, and we drove around for a while, all through town and past Tercel's house out on River Road. We didn't stop, though. If you ask me, graduation night is highly overrated. Brenda cut the lights, and we were almost to my house. It was late, and the last thing either of us wanted was for her to wake my parents, specifically Mama. Mama loathed Brenda almost as much as I loved her, and the reason wasn't complicated. When I was little, Mama and I were close, but as I grew up, not so much. And my mother had somehow convinced herself Brenda was to blame. This was stupid, of course, but once my Mama gets something stuck in her head, there is no getting it out again. 
So you're going out with Wayne tomorrow night, right? I asked, even though I already knew the answer. Brenda and Wayne have a standing date every Friday night. Yeah, there's the annual pig roast out at McClellan's farm. All the employees are invited. Bobby will be there. Brenda gave me a teasing grin. You can come with me and Wayne. Give that boy one last memory before you leave town. And do what with Tercel Blount exactly? Pry her off him with a crowbar? Or maybe beat her with the crowbar? Brenda laughed. You are such a redneck, I said, and watched as she took a sip of her Dr. Pepper. Obviously, she'd forgotten there was a cigarette butt floating inside. <laughs> oh, my God, gross! Brenda pounded the steering wheel. Gum, Retta, I need gum, quick! Now you know how Wayne probably feels every time he kisses you, just like licking an ashtray, I said, and dug through my purse for a stick of juicy fruit. I climbed out of Brenda's car and watched her back down our steep, washed-out driveway. Long ago, Daddy'd given up on refilling the crater-sized holes. The minute he refilled them, it rained like crazy and washed everything away again. Brenda waved and sped off up the road, headlights turned on this time. I tiptoed up the porch steps, avoiding the creaky spots, and sat down. Even though I had to work bright and early the next morning, I couldn't seem to drag myself to bed. There was a storm brewing. I could smell it on the air, hear it rustling in the leaves. In the few hours we'd sat out on Baker's Point, the night had gone from bright and starry to inky black. The river would be starting to whitecap right about now. There was a storm churning inside my head, too, and it had been raging for weeks. So many thoughts and all of them coming at once. Starling High School and the way I'd always felt there, like nobody took me seriously, which they didn't. Bluebell's Diner with its awfully greasy smell and Stinky Stan, my creepy lech manager. Every time he looked at me, I felt like I needed a scalding hot shower. And Mama and Daddy and the tired bitterness between them. And I thought about all those times I'd held myself back, not studied for a test, not done my homework. More than once it had occurred to me that maybe I couldn't be trusted with a big dream. Thank you, guys.